Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and this episode features part one of two from my recent conversation with Mike Roselli. Mike's the host of the Doggy Juice podcast, and he's also an attorney and an avid sports better. You may remember his first appearance on this show back in November when he broke down the sports betting legalization landscape across the United States, and with this appearance, Mike becomes the first two-time guest in Props and Hops history. Mike shares some more updates on legalization. It seems like we're getting some big news on that front every week these days, and Mike also shares an update on a new job he has as the chief compliance and legal officer at PlayUp, an Australia-based betting entertainment and technology group. PlayUp's making some serious inroads in the U.S. as legalization sweeps across the nation, so it was exciting to touch on that with Mike. And from there, we cut to the heart of this episode, discussing our takeaways from Conference Championship Sunday in the NFL, plus our initial thoughts on betting angles for Super Bowl 55. As a quick programming note, tomorrow I'll release part two of the conversation where the focus shifts to how to win at sports betting, and whether you're just thinking about starting out as a better, or you've got years of experience betting sports, I think the concepts ranging from prescriptive advice you can apply right now to developing the proper perspective to stand the test of time made this a fit for betters of all backgrounds. How to win at sports betting was a compelling evergreen topic, and it applies year-round for all sports, and as a bonus, if you want early access to our top five tips to become a winning better, check out Props and Hops on YouTube to watch my full interview with Mike. I've included a link in the show notes for easy reference. And while we're at it, go ahead and subscribe to Props and Hops if you haven't already to make sure you get part two of the conversation in podcast form tomorrow. For now, listen in for the latest on the state of sports betting legalization, followed by a preliminary look at Super Bowl 55. Mike, welcome back to Props and Hops. I'm excited to dig in on some football talk, conference championship recap, looking ahead to the Super Bowl a bit, uh, then really focusing on the meat of this conversation, how to win at sports betting. But first things first with Props and Hops, uh, how are you doing and what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you so much for having me back on. I believe I'm the, the first repeat guest of the Props and Hops podcast, so I'm, I feel very honored. And I'm drinking a nice, th- this one I totally just got into recently. Um, out here in Chicago land. So I don't know exactly where they sell it, but it's around the Bend beer company. It's called the Vera pistachio cream ale. So if you're into like pistachio and that taste, it's subtle, but it's like, it's really, it's been like the beer I've been drinking the most the past week or so. I drank like four or five of them during the AFC and NFC championship games over the weekend. So it's, it's really good. So it gets the five stars. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, um, there, the cream ale is a pretty rare style out here in Southern California. There's a brewery called Mother Earth that makes one called Cali Creamin, and it's a vanilla cream ale. So different flavor profile going from vanilla to pistachio, but I think similar in that, yeah, if you want to put away four or five of those in one sitting watching football, you can definitely do it. And uh, I guess to transition over to what I've got going tonight, this was the conference championship weekend show beer on Props and Hops, rough translation. It's a Kolsch by Green Cheek, my favorite brewery. Um, as viewers watching this on YouTube, we will be able to see with the shirt I've got on as well. Definitely a homer for uh, for my guys over at Green Cheek. So um, another just crusher. Got a couple left for Super Sunday as well. Uh, just spectacular for back-to-back-to-back weekends of awesome days of playoff football, almost wall-to-wall. So, yeah, when you want to have maybe four or five over the course of a long day but still keep your wits about you, um, whether it's something like a Kolsch or a cream ale, uh, can't really go wrong. So cheers. Yeah, cheers. 
I also have a belly full of tacos as well. So I'm, I'm ready to rock here and talk some football with you. It's, it's going to be a really fun talk. I'm, I'm excited. Perfect. Yeah. Likewise. Well, uh, <laughs> well, on that note, since we had you on the show in November, I know we've flipped the calendar over to a new year and then you've also taken on a new job in the sports betting space. So I'd love it if you could walk us through what that job is and how that's going for you. Yeah. So I, I accepted a new position um, as chief compliance and legal officer at play up USA. Uh, so play up for those of you unfamiliar, uh, it's, it's a, it's a very popular, prominent Australian uh, DFS company. It's, and they do sports betting too. Um, and licensed in, in India as well. And, and they're looking to make a move into the space here, the U S sports betting space and, and make a, a one-stop shop for sports betting for uh paramutual fixed odds, horse racing, and for um, among other things, you know, DFS and, and uh, they want to get involved in the game here in America. So they have the, the new U.S. team that they're, um, that they're looking to head up and, and, and introduce to new markets here. There's market, we have market access already in, in New Jersey and Colorado. Uh, and New Jersey is, is the priority right now. So if you're out in New Jersey, uh, be on the lookout for play up to be the newest sports book, uh, coming soon. It's, it's hopefully going to be sooner, um, than later, but we're in the process right now of going through the, the, uh, final stages to get that, uh, book available for everyone to bet on in, in New Jersey. So fun times ahead. I'm really excited to be a part of it. Uh, Dr. Layla Mintus, a former professor of mine at the University of New Hampshire Sports Wagering and Integrity Program. She's our U.S. CEO. So I, I was actually the second hire, um, here in, in the U.S. So it's, you know, we're building the team right now, but it's really fun to be, uh, to be a part of a company like this that's looking to disrupt the space here in the, in the U.S. with sports betting and, and iGaming. So. Uh, I'm excited about it, just trying to work with state regulators and, and try and get us in as many states as possible. Yeah, and I know you have a legal background. I mean, last time we had you on, we talked specifically about sports betting legalization, and I won't be able to help myself from bringing that up again shortly for a possible um, batch of updates. But what's it like being on this end of it now, applying your legal background um, in a time of legalization sweeping the nation and, and getting things up and running with a new outlet for, you know, a bunch of states across the country, knowing that as a better at the same time, having more outs is often the name of the game. Yeah, no, it's like really fun. It's like, it's cool for me because I'm wearing like kind of two separate hats, obviously, and doing my own sports betting podcast. I'm a, I'm a, a better myself as obviously we're going to talk about a lot of that uh, today, but uh, it's fun for me just being involved from the legal side and, and kind of marrying my, my legal background with what I'm interested in. And that's obviously the, the newly legal regulated sports betting industry here in the U S and there's changes by the day. I mean, there's been changes since the last time we talked and this week there's, there's new news every week. You can't even keep up with it because every single day there's, there's a new piece of news that'll drop. And, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic is, is going to speed up a process that I think was going to occur anyway. And I'm sure we'll get into some of this stuff, but it's just a fun space to be in. It's what I'm passionate about. So it just made perfect sense for me to, to try and make a career out of this stuff uh, from the, from the legal side. Yeah, that's cool. It's a great time to hear you getting involved in this and kind of building something from the ground up. So definitely something we'll be monitoring in the weeks, months, and quite possibly years to come. And um, on that note, we will get into conference championship Sunday takeaways, initial look at Super Bowl 55, um, and then the meat of this conversation, how to win at sports betting. But if I'm talking with you, got to touch on legalization a little bit as well. Um, I know that you know, listeners can go back to November 10th when we dropped the last episode to hear um, a 
broader overview of how things stand right now. But even fast forwarding a couple of months, I know that last week there was some big news. I guess starting off with the Wire Act, if I have it right, the First District Court of Appeals ruled that the 1961 Wire Act applied only to sporting events, which I know doesn't take off the chains in that sense, um, but it does reject a contention from the Department of Justice that the Wire Act also prohibited other forms of interstate gambling. So if yeah. you could just give a quick primer on what the Wire Act is, what this means for non-sports gambling, and then if you do see any possible implications for sports gambling in the future. Yeah, it was a really big decision last week by the, the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, it, it basically is keeping the status quo. So like you're not going to see any big changes or anything, anything like that. Um, but the Wire Act basically, is, as you mentioned, early 1960s uh, federal statute, and it, it essentially bans interstate wagering. So you can't make a bet with a Nevada bookmaker from a state outside of Nevada. And there was confusion because back in 2011, there was a, a department, a DOJ, Department of Justice opinion that basically, you know, it solidified the fact that the Wire Act only applied to sports betting. But then back in 2018, the Department of Justice under the Trump administration came out and, and reversed that opinion, saying that it didn't necessarily only apply to sports betting. And of course, that scared the bejesus out of state uh, lottery commissions and, and, and every poker player that's <laughs> playing poker seriously in the United States. And and they they saw clarity on this on the the new this reversal, you know, in a seven year period from 2011 to 2018. And and so case went to court. The uh, district judge ruled that, you know, the status quo shall remain, but it went, it was uh, brought up to the first circuit court of appeals and they confirmed it as well. So it is confirmed. Everyone can have a big sigh of relief. It was a big week last week because uh, the, the first circuit court of appeals did confirm that it, that the wire act only applies to sports betting. So that allows, it's, it's going to be felt more on the, in the poker world uh, because interstate uh, compacts can still be in existence where you can pool players together from multiple states and, you know, for other things too. I mean, it's, it, it really is, just, it's going to keep the status quo, but for sports betting, I think this could open up the door to see, you know, the wire act being revisited, not with this case necessarily, because I think that's the last we're going to hear from this case. I don't think there's any indication that the Biden administration is going to try and bring this one to the Supreme court, which is the only place it can go now. But I think it's a good sign for people in the industry who have been watching this wire act issue closely um, over the past few years, because, you know, in my opinion, I think it's just an outdated law. Um, when they crafted it in the early 1960s, they didn't have, you know, mobile wagering from the comfort of our couches in mind. So I think it's an outdated law. And I think that if anything, this is going to put us in that situation down that road, or at least further down the path of, of seeing the wire act uh, done away with, or, or partially done away with and open up the door for uh, more similar, you know, interstate gaming compacts when it comes to sports wagering and, and that opens up the door for, you know, a, a betting exchange that can work and more competitive odds for, for us betters. So I think it's just a win for everybody uh, last week in, in the gaming industry in general. It was a, it was a big win. Yeah. Awesome. Love hearing that take. Fingers crossed for more to come on the Wire Act in the future. And beyond the Wire Act, we also had news across the country on the legalization front last week. Uh, mobile betting launched in Michigan. Iowa, actually, since we last spoke, Iowa started to allow mobile betting, I believe, beginning on New Year's Day. And then Virginia, surprisingly, launching legal regulated sports betting last week. Um, let me know if that doesn't cover everything from the last week or so. I know, to your point, things are changing so fast, generally moving the ball forward, which is encouraging to see. Um, but yeah, 
Does that cover the bulk of the most recent updates? And if so, what are your takeaways from this recent news? Yeah, just like a big like start to the year. It's like, oh, 2021, all right, here with a bang. I mean, it's Michigan. Uh, we knew it was going to happen because they, they went live as a state for sports betting uh, back in, I believe it was March of last year. So they've been live for a long time, but uh, they didn't have mobile figured out. So obviously during a pandemic, when, when people can't even go to casinos or they're not comfortable going to casinos, it's hard to bring in that revenue and, and that handle when people aren't able to do the betting from their phones. So Michigan finally launched mobile last Friday. It was a big event. And we've seen multiple operators out there in the state. It's a very friendly, um, they have very friend, friendly regulatory structure there that opens up the door for as many as 15 operators could be, uh, could have an app, uh, for people to bet on, you know, the next couple of months. Um, I'm not sure how many have officially launched already. I know some are having some issues getting, uh, launching and going live, but it's a really big development because Michigan obviously is a, they love sports there. They love college sports and, um, and then, Canada Canadians can come right down through uh, over the Ambassador Bridge there into Michigan, and it's just a, and it's a bigger state too. So that's definitely a state to watch moving forward. Uh, now that they have mobile, Virginia kind of came out of nowhere. You know, you knew that they had legalized it, but you weren't sure when it was going to launch. And then just kind of on a random, you know, just on a whim last Wednesday, I think uh, FanDuel announced that they were going to launch the next day. And then um, I believe another book has, has since joined them since they launched, but Virginia, they're, they're live with mobile now too. So, and, and then Iowa, uh, to your point before they can, uh, the year and a half period is now run on in-person registration, that requirement. And that's something we had here in the law in Illinois where I'm at, but Governor Pritzker, which I think we touched on in the last episode together, he, here in Illinois, he issued an executive order and kept renewing it, basically removing the in-person registration requirement, which is a huge deal because people are able to, when you can have people sign up from their couches and not have to go in, you know how Gen Z is. They don't want to get up and, and talk to anybody. You know, they want to do everything from their phones. So especially with this younger crop of, of betters that are coming up and, and then and during a pandemic too, where people are just less comfortable, you know, a lot of people less comfortable going in and physically registering. It's a big deal when you can just have your better signing up from the comfort of their couch. Yeah, and circling back to something you mentioned with Virginia, specifically this timing being a bit of a surprise, knowing they had things in the works, but um, catching some people off guard moving forward as suddenly as they appear to have done last week. Mm-hmm. Is that related to lobbying power that FanDuel has or any interest the state has in capturing revenue from such a precious window of NFL Conference Championship weekend leading into the Super Bowl? Was there anything... Um, behind the scenes that would really accelerate that timing because that's such a big moment of the sports betting calendar. Yeah, no doubt that there's, I mean, even regulators, legislators, everybody involved in this knows that how big of a deal the, the Super Bowl is and the March Madness right around the corner. So it's important for everybody to get this done, you know, at this time and, you know, of the year before all these big betting events happen. So, you know, I'm not sure how much power or, you know, lobbying sway FanDuel will have, but no doubt uh, there were a lot of interested parties that wanted to see this done at this time and, and, and good for them. You know, they got it done. They figured it out. And, and, and as we've touched on in the past, a lot of these, a lot of the states out there are figuring this out uh, early on and a lot of them are not. And hopefully the ones that are not are able to learn from their mistakes and learn from others that are not. And states that have yet to launch or yet to uh, even legalize sports betting, hopefully they can take a page of the book from the states that are getting it right. Yeah, well, I'm in one of those states in the category of not having figured it out yet out here in California. And I know that in our last conversation, we touched on two really big markets with some ground still to cover, California and on the East Coast, New York, kind of a 
counterpart 3,000 miles away. I know those situations aren't identical between the two states, but um, they are far from ideal when we look at where a lot of other states already are. So um, again, listeners can check out the episode from early November to get that deeper dive on New York, California, and the rest of the country. But over the past two plus months, with California and New York being such massive states, has there been any ground covered or is it kind of just the status quo for now? So we've seen big news out of New York. I'll touch on California really quick just because there hasn't been much. And there was a, a hearing actually, now it's been over a year. It was on January 8th of last year before, you know, COVID and all that stuff, you know, before things got crazy. I remember watching it myself because a lot of, a lot of, uh, prominent Vegas personalities came in, like some, some odds makers from Vegas, they came in to testify um, in front of the California lawmakers and stuff. And it's just crazy to think that we've come, you know, over a year now since that hearing. And, and I know when we talked about things back in, back in the fall, it, it was looking promising for California um, at the end of the year, but then kind of just tailed out. And we're looking at a situation where it's, you know, 2022, you know, at best on the 2022 ballot, getting on that ballot is probably as early as, as, uh, as we'll see it in California. So 2023 would be my over under early 2023 on, on it launching there. But New York, we've seen a big development there. And the mainly because Governor Cuomo um, has reversed his, his course on, on mobile betting because New York has had um, in person betting uh, brick and mortar locations for a while now. And I've, everybody knows how big New York can be when it, when it goes live with mobile. Uh, and especially since so many New Yorkers are traveling over to, to New Jersey and, and taking their business elsewhere. But Cuomo basically came out and said, Hey, we're, we're going to look at this now in mobile betting because the state's going to be, I mean, I think everyone's kind of expecting like a 1970s style financial crisis in New York right now due to the pandemic and people leaving the city. So they're, and the, the entire state of New York is going to be pressed for cash and they're going to be looking for additional revenue sources the next few years. So they're, you know, naturally turning to sports betting. And I think it's, that's a good way to look for them. But then, you know, in the same breath, Cuomo excited everybody. I remember the morning he announced that he actually explicitly mentioned sports betting as an additional revenue source and everyone, you know, erupted. Oh my God, this is a big deal. But then almost like in the same breath later that same day, he said that they're going to be looking to institute a lottery style system that's similar to, to New Hampshire and a few other jurisdictions. And, he, and his rhetoric, you know, was essentially along the lines of we don't want to make money for casinos and that's very problematic, um, in my opinion. And I, I think that a lot of people in the industry would agree with me, uh, that going down the lottery route with only one operator and a, you know, a monopoly essentially is not a good long-term plan for the state of New York. And I've gone on record with this, uh, for a few years now on my podcast and other people I talk about that I, the states that get it right are the ones that are fostering innovation and they don't have overburdensome licensing fees for operators and an overburdensome tax structure. It allows operators room to breathe and innovate and compete with one another, offer competitive pricing. And in, in turn, that's good for betters because betters are price sensitive. They want to get the best number that they can find. And when there's only one operator out there, like a state like Montana, you can look at, or Oregon, Washington, DC, betters are, you know, some of them will take that uh, whatever's being offered to them, but a lot are not. They're going to keep their business elsewhere, you know, offshore in the black market. And I think that's that's what will happen in, in New York. You know, you see some of these forecasts that they're talking about, uh, trying like five hundred million dollars in revenue or something like that. It was just, it's just 
skyrocketed numbers and just like sky high numbers that they're talking about. And in that model, you really just cap what you can do, especially when New Jersey's right next door and, and savvy betters in New York City are just going to continue to travel, you know, to, to bet with 15 or 20 operators in New Jersey instead of the one in New York. So it's, you know, it's good and bad right now. And there's definitely talk about lobbying. New York right now is definitely an interesting situation to watch because there's a lot of parties, a lot of state um, lobbyists and obviously um, operators. They're lobbying for, uh, for a model that looks more like New Jersey, or at least not like the model that Cuomo's coming out with. So it's something to watch. There's reason for optimism, but I really hope they get this right in New York. Cool. And one quick point to clarify. So the lottery system essentially deems it a monopoly. There's one operator and that could mean they could price games at, you know, if the Super Bowl were to be, I mean, this one has a little bit of extra big on the minus three for the Chiefs or the plus three and a half for the Bucks. But let's say there's a game that's plus three, minus 110, minus three, minus 110 across the board. In a state with a lottery system, they could say, hey, we're going to do the same plus three, but it's minus 120 either side. And that's the only option you have if you want to do this above board. Is that correct? That's the primary downside of a lottery? Yeah, the lottery system, you know, more having the state lottery run it is basically, yeah. So yeah, it, it creates a monopoly, one, one stop shop for your lines. And you're seeing that what you just described is happening in Montana. I know people are up in arms right when uh, the first odds came out in Montana and you're seeing minus 137 on both sides of a game. It's like, I mean, you know how much, you know how much you have to win over time to, uh, to <laughs> how many bets you have to win laying minus 137 over time. So, uh, it's no one can do it. So it's, it's a situation where I mean, even Oregon, they have a similar system where the lottery runs it and they just have a, you know, it's just one option. And the governor in Oregon just came out last week and she's side, she's um, siding with new, uh, a new law, new legislation that's being introduced to change that existing system and actually move to a system where they have multiple um, private entities, you know, operating. So you're seeing a state already in that example, that's kind of realized, Hey, we did not get this right. So let's change. So hopefully New York can, can look there for a prime example of why that the system that Cuomo is talking about, is just not going to work for them in the long term. Yeah. It sounds like naturally a lot of growing pains with this as different states try to figure it out, but at least it's encouraging to see a place like Oregon um, try to get it right instead of severally try to be right if they clearly are not with the initial approach. So a lot of ebbs and flows to all this. I'm sure we'll be um, reaching out to you, uh, as often as we can get you on the show to stay abreast of everything going on on the legalization front. And it's all in the numbers too. I mean, like when you look at the state, I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding when you see the state revenue numbers, which obviously they all publish. So you could see the states that are bringing more money are the ones that have that system in place, you know, and the states that are falling behind and, and uh, not bringing in anywhere near as much revenue are the states that, that have, you know, a similar system like Washington, DC or Montana, Oregon, and, you know, even New Hampshire. So. We'll see. Yeah. Well, on the topic of bringing in the revenue, if you were a Bucks better on Sunday, uh, things panned out pretty well. Transitioning into some NFL talk, uh, looking at conference championship Sunday that we just experienced two days ago as we record this conversation, episode to drop a little bit later in the week. Um, but nevertheless, we know what happened at Lambeau Field on Sunday, the Bucks beating the Packers. Um, Having watched that game, thinking about it from what transpired on Sunday and what this could mean for the Bucks in the Super Bowl, what would your top takeaway be from the NFC title game? For me, I mean, it's it's the Brady factor, and I hate to sound square talking about this, but literally just his swag level, you could just see him making those throws with confidence during that game when he was zipping it through. A couple of them got picked. You know, he threw a couple of them um, in the red zone. Three. 
but yeah, yeah. So, but he was the fact that he was throwing them with the same confidence and you know with authority, he put zest on those. And a couple of those, of those catch those balls were catchable. I think that one of them, uh, Mike Evans, uh, kind of sailed through his hands and stuff. So not totally on Brady for that. But I think there's something to be said that you it's really hard to quantify. You know, when we're trying to find edges on a on a weekly basis in in the NFL. But there's something to be said for that Tom Brady factor and, and him lifting up the other players around him who know that he's been there for forever. He's a mainstay. I mean, what, how many Super Bowls has he played in now? Like nine or 10? I think this will be his 10th. Yeah. Yeah. So his presence and experience, I think just lifts up the confidence level of the other players and even the coaches that are calling the plays. Maybe they're more willing to call, um, and you know how Bruce Arians is with his offense. I mean, but more willing to call play that, you know, Hey, guy like Tom Brady, he can make this throw. He's not worried. So it could even impact, you know, things like that and the play calling. So that's my biggest takeaway is, is Tom Brady. And, and, I, and I'll be honest when I not to toot my own horn here at all, because nobody cares about bets that other, other people have, but I, I was a big believer in the bucks before they signed Brady. Cause even, even when they brought in Bruce Arians, I was like, okay, this is, this is good. I'm, I'm a big Bruce Arians fan. And so I locked in like a few futures on, on the bucks before Brady back in March, before he signed with the team at, at, 40 to 50, 40 to 1, 50 to 1, and 20 to 1 to win the NFC. So I was definitely rooting for the Bucks this weekend. And then, of course, when they brought in Brady, the market, you know, all the betting public sided with the Bucks. I think they got down to like 10 to 1, 12 to 1, and all the value was sucked away to the point where I think there was actually probably even betting value on the under in their season win total by the time it closed at like 10 or 10 and a half. So, you know, I think the betting market, you know, at the start of the season completely, you know, they've made the Bucks a, a public team, so to speak, but I think it was warranted. I mean, it, maybe it's a square thing to think and maybe it's confirmation bias, but, but I think that a guy like Tom Brady, you just can't quantify that, that extra X factor that he brings to the table. Yeah. And one topic that came up, um, I'm sure with a lot of betters last weekend, uh, having futures tickets on any of the final four teams standing would be whether or not to hedge. And with your Bucks futures exposure, um, I, I know you're, you're generally aligned with my point of view on this. I spoke to it at length in last week's episode, which hedging essentially makes sense in two cases. Either it's guaranteeing life-changing money or that bet that is essentially a hedge would have standalone value. Um, what was your approach to handling the Bucks heading into Green Bay as an underdog last Sunday? Yeah, no, that was exactly, I mean, I completely agree with the way you, you said that. And, you know, it's, it's a different situation for every better when they're thinking you know, there's that trade-off um, when you're hedging, how much, Hedging, do you want to do? How much EV do you want to give away? And I, for me, I, I did play back some on the Packers. I found like a nice money line uh, price that was, I think it was like minus 160 when the market was, consensus was like minus 175. So I played a little bit back on Green Bay on the money line just to more or less. I mean, not to like think that I've locked in a profit or anything like that, but more your second example of a little bit of betting value, even though I've made the game pretty much right what it was at, the going rate actually leaned the bucks a little bit. But yeah, so I, I play back a little bit. Of course, not wishing I didn't. Um, but that was, you know, for I, I had the NFC future. I think it was it was a situation where I, if I didn't have the NFC future and just like that game was was the game in question, I probably wouldn't have hedged as much, if at all, just because obviously I have to win one more game to cash that the fifty to one tickets. But yeah, I, I did hedge a little bit. Yeah, and I think a big part of it is militant as I like to be with that type of approach, knowing what the numbers say. Um, at a certain point. If it's just emotionally irresistible or not hedging would take some of the joy out of it, there's also that dynamic. Like something is not necessarily minus EV, even if the numbers would say it, if it means that mentally you're going to be in a better place. So to your point, that's a different equation for every better. 
Right. And everybody has a different risk tolerance and, 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 you know, let's face it. I mean, like a, everyone's, uh, I guess like a big payout is different to different people and stuff too. So it really comes down to how much you're willing to, to live with. And you kind of brought that point up just now. It's how much, if you can live with yourself, I guess. And I would have been totally fine if, you know, if, the, if I didn't hedge and the bucks didn't win, but, um, but of course I say that at the same time <laughs> so, right now. So yeah, yeah, it's easy to say uh, in, in these shoes right now, but uh, for me, it's always a situation where I'm, I'm avoiding at all costs, giving away my equity when I have it. Yeah. And I think a big point there is just being mindful of the trade-off. Clearly you had a plan, you found a number that was, you know, off market and advantageous for the other side. So there was some of that standalone value and uh, yeah, moving forward to the Super Bowl, uh, still a lot of futures on the Bucks, probably fewer on the Chiefs because they've been a shorter number all along. But that's something that people can keep in mind over the next couple of weeks. Um, if you're going to hedge, like, that's okay. That doesn't make you a terrible better or a bad person or anything like that. But just be mindful of the trade-offs. If you're, if you're making a bet that doesn't have positive expected value on its own, um, then that is something to factor into the decision-making process. Exactly. Like in a vacuum on its own, if it's a bad bet, you probably should, you shouldn't be making it, but in a vacuum, if it's plus EV, then it's a bet you should be making. And you know, obviously that's hard to find and stuff, but you know, in this situation, I completely agree. So it's going to be an interesting thing for a lot of betters this you know, next couple of weeks. The temptation will probably be there uh, to lock in a profit, but they just have to know when they do that, that they're you're effectively dipping into the VIG twice, because as we know, futures pools, when you're, when you're betting into those, the household is a lot higher than a lot of betters even realize. And then obviously you're going to be laying that minus 110 when you're, when you're hedging or in theory, you know, if you're laying a money line, you're going to be uh, betting into the household. So better should be aware of that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think you laid out your primary takeaway from the NFC title game pretty well. When I first heard that, I was tempted to disagree quite a bit because um, having had a few derivatives on the Packers, uh, skewed toward a strong start, that clearly did not play out well. And the end of the first half was just a backbreaker. I, I think yes, yeah. one of the passes before the touchdown when the Packers just decided not to play defense, um, they had an interception, just an, an easy pick that they dropped. So that I think Brady threw three picks in the second half. He should have had another one before halftime instead of a touchdown that really skewed his box score. Um, but at the same time, he's exceeded all of my expectations. So I can't um, push back too hard having that Tampa Bay regular season wins under at multiple numbers. Um, so I, I do have to acknowledge that, you know, they, they might've got some good breaks, but they've still um, done a lot to earn their current place. So tying that in with my biggest takeaway from the NFC title game, I, I just watching it, I could not stop questioning the process behind the fortunate results that the Bucks seem to be getting. Um, and I'm, I'm not looking to bet against them in the Super Bowl because of it, but thinking about um, first downs, just before every first down snap, it's like, okay, here's going to be a run for, zero to three yards. Um, they were way too predictable. I did some manual charting and they ran it on 14 out of 21 first down snaps. And that's filtering out that inexplicable final play of the first half when everybody except for the Packers knew they were going to pass. Except um, Greg, William, Greg Williams took over as a coach for a play for the Packers too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, he's got a dozen head coaching offers waiting for him, but he had to step in for that moment for Green Bay at the coordinator yeah. level. Yeah, dude, just for that point. So, um, yeah, there was that moment where, um, that's, you know, of course they were going to pass there and the last series of downs when they're running out the clock after, um, they got the final first down on a pass interference call. Um, we knew they were going to run. So in, in more or less situations where they could have been 
less predictable. They still ran two-thirds of the time, and yet they converted two-thirds of the time on third and fourth down in the game. And those conversions included seven yards, nine yards, nine yards, 13 yards. That's just not sustainable. So um, I know you touched on Bruce Arians, you know, presumably the angle of liking to be aggressive with the offense and Brady playing at such a high level and the weapons they have in the passing game. Why they're not using that before it's third and long, I don't understand. It worked out for them more often than not on Sunday at Lambeau. But if they're if they're not playing from ahead of the, you know, if they're not making more optimal decisions on early downs, it could really come back to bite them on later downs. So we'll see if they can adjust there. Um, the Packers essentially gave Tampa two touchdowns in less than two minutes of game time by not defending the final play of the first half. Then there was the Aaron Jones fumble to set up a one-play, eight-yard touchdown drive in the opening moments of the second half. And then in the end game, so many vagaries. The Matt LaFleur decision to kick the field goal, chief among them, but that was far from the only one. Um, Tampa Bay's kick returner sliding down on his own volition with two seconds to go before the two-minute warning, that just gave the Packers a fourth timeout. Um, the Packers wisely jumping offside after the two-minute warning because it was going to be second and two, just give them the first down and save your timeouts for a fresh series of downs. Arians could have declined that penalty, and he right. didn't do it. I've played in flag football leagues where people know to decline that penalty in that situation. I was livid. <laughs> I was not happy. <laughs> so so Tampa Bay won the game, and, and they deserve credit, but... Um, you know, Lafleur wasn't the only one to make a questionable decision, but but the Bucks did get some breaks. And I have to note that Lafleur's postgame comments, lamenting the result but defending his process to kick that field goal, um, to me that's just an affront to any sense of reason. And I know better than to take it personally or try to read too much into it. But as somebody who champions the process over the result, hearing him twist things around like that was just like nails on a chalkboard. So in that sense. I am a little bit relieved that it's Tampa that's going to be playing in the Super Bowl to represent the NFC. Um, Got to give them credit. As many breaks as they might have gotten, as much questionable process as they might have overcome. Bottom line, to your point, Brady, I think exceeding any reasonable expectations people could have had for them this season. I mean, they're in the Super Bowl. They, You can only get so many breaks. At a certain point, you have to get the job done to make it this far, and they've done that. So examining the process to get there, maybe not as kind as taking the result of NFC champions at face value, but... Here they are. They're still Super Bowl bound. I have a question for you, though, because I, I, I think there's something to this potential. I don't want to hear your thoughts. That late bye week for the Bucks back in, I think, week 13 was their bye week. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, they had a few more weeks left. They had to play at week 17. They had to, I think they needed like a result in order to keep that favorable matchup against Washington football team. But uh, do you think that had something to do with maybe this late surge that we're seeing from the Bucks as well? That especially with a guy like Tom Brady, who a little bit older, but having that late bye week allowed you know, some of the guys who had you know, lingering injuries to rest up for the stretch run. Do you think there's something to that, or do you think that might be overblown? Yeah, it's tough. I I can't say with confidence that it isn't helping. If anything, it could only be a boon, especially because Brady, at this stage of his career, coming in to a new team, definitely a new scheme, with no real offseason. I know he was more aggressive than most at trying to do what he could in the offseason, and and maybe that's paid off, but getting that late season by, it seems like um, all reports from people closer to the Bucks who watch them more than I do seem to think that the timing with the receivers has been noticeably better since then. And also I think that comes into play when considering um, Tampa was playing its fifth road game in six weeks in the NFC title game. Green Bay had only traveled once in those past six weeks. So that's 
that's a daunting situation anytime you stack it up, but having that late season buy at least might have given the Bucks a little more freshness than a team that, let's say, in that same spot running on fumes if they had a week four buy. Mm-hmm. And especially in COVID, too, I think something to be said for that, you know, really helping out. Just it's tar- harder to travel during COVID and with everything, you know, everything in place right now, a lot more stress involved with traveling. And uh, I thought that, that that helped them personally, but it's hard to say how much, you know. Yeah, that's one of those things that's almost impossible to quantify. Um, and generally, a lot of narratives are, you know, easy to get out of hand. I like to think if we're something I'll touch on later. If you're hearing about something on ESPN or at the barber shop, then it's it's <laughs> probably baked into the line and then some. Um, so yeah, from, from a betting standpoint, maybe there's not a ton to take from it, but from just a pure watching football, seeing how this team is performing, it's hard to say that that's hurt in any way. It's only something that could be working in their favor. And here they are with another buy. So we'll see what they can do against Andy Reid off a buy. Um, and, and on that note, transitioning to the AFC, what was your top takeaway from the AFC championship game between the Bills and the Chiefs? Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> um, Honestly, like my biggest takeaway from that game was, and it, it sounds, you know, might be square again, but just Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, how do you guard that? If you're, if you're a defensive coordinator, even when you have two weeks to prepare for that, when you have a guy like Mahomes, that's going to be like really hard to stop, especially in today's NFL. So my takeaway, I guess, from that was just more of the same from the Chiefs, but I was also thinking like, how are the Bucks going to scheme this up for the next two weeks? Uh, because you can only do so much. You can only double team two guys so much and leave yourself exposed to a guy like Patrick Mahomes. So yeah, it it was, might be square, but just the chiefs are really good. was my biggest takeaway. Yeah. Well, and it's funny going into that game, the narrative was they haven't covered a game for two months and they, are they still suffering from the super bowl championship hangover? Are they able to flip the switch? And now the narrative is, geez, they, they've only lost one game since before the playoffs began last year. Um, it's amazing how that can turn on a dime. Again, beware the power of narratives, but especially Mahomes in that setting. Um, I, I think by the time we got to the middle of the week, it seemed pretty likely that the concussion protocol element wouldn't have a huge effect if he even did have a concussion. Um, people more knowledgeable than I can speak to that part of the injury situation, but the, the turf toe, uh, his mobility seemed really good. And with another buy coming up, um, after he looked noticeably hobbled on a few pretty straightforward pass attempts against the Browns. He seems, uh, he didn't run a lot, but when he needed to maneuver in the pocket and keep plays alive, he was totally able to do it. And with a, a bye week before the Super Bowl, it's a safe bet he'll be able to do it again on Super Sunday. So to your point, the Bucks defense has its work cut out for it. And, uh, good luck if Todd Bowles wants to stay blitz heavy like he always is. They, they might need to adapt if they're going to have any chance there. Yeah. No, I agree completely. Uh, Two weeks prepare for it, you know, that that's uh at least they have that. Yeah, that's that's not gonna hurt. If they can make as good of use uh with this bye week as they did with their later bye week in the regular season, then Tampa Bay uh, you know, definitely has a chance in this one. Um and I'll I'll say that from the AFC championship game, my top takeaway was Sean McDermott, like what's going on, man? Um good head coach by all accounts, but holy smokes, thirteen seconds left in the first half, down twenty one to nine, fourth and goal at the two kicking a field goal, um, just like the Packers fourth down at the end of the game in Lambeau, that was an automatic go-for-it decision. Um, instead, kicks a 20-yard field goal to keep a two-score game, a two-score game going into halftime. And if that wasn't enough, he doubled down on that approach late third quarter, almost the same exact spot, 
again, down by 12, fourth and three in the red zone, kicks a 26-yard field goal once again to cut a two-score deficit to a two-score deficit. So that's textbook on how not to beat the Chiefs. And the bottom line is that the Chiefs, to your point, they're tough enough to beat when you don't double down on suboptimal decisions, especially with Mahomes looking dangerously close to 100%, and he may well be there come Super Sunday. So Kansas City didn't need any favors to get back to the Super Bowl, but I'm I'm sure they were happy to take a couple assists from a pretty highly regarded head coach in Sean McDermott. Yeah, I think it's just something to be said. Like, coaches in the playoffs, and it's not just this year, but they just get so risk-averse with their decision-making. And I don't know if it's the added pressure of the moment and, and with more eyeballs on them, what really gets into their in their heads here. But, yeah, it's, it's perplexing, to say the least, you know, seeing these coaches that have spent the whole year. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's finalist for coach of the year this year, and, and uh, to make decisions like that after making decisions, you know, pretty optimally the whole season. I can't think of any off the top of my head that he made during the regular season or even in the playoffs so far up until this week that, that were head scratchers, but then he comes out with those. So uh, not ideal. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of uh, risk aversion, I guess the flip side of that could speak to a lot of batters approaches when it comes to the Super Bowl. I know it's the, the biggest game of the year, a, a lot of different ways to get down and have some action riding on it. Um, but as we look ahead to Super Sunday, if you could share one tip for betting on the Super Bowl, uh, what would you say? Oh, man, I might I might do a three pack here, but I'll make it quick. First tip, <laughs> and I'm sorry if I'm stealing one of yours, but like I, you know, I didn't want to be just like the you know the guy who's no fun to let you know. And I'm sure you're you would echo this sentiment, but it's just the same. Like your bankroll does not understand the difference between the Super Bowl and a Wednesday night, you know, Missouri Valley college basketball game. The money prints the exact same. And when you're betting into a Super Bowl line, especially on say you know on game day, you're betting into a line that's been hammered out by the public and, and, and it's one of the most liquid, it is the most liquid betting market effectively here in regulated betting in the U S. So understand that going in, but also when you're looking to bet props, because we're all going to have prop bets, handicap the game first, handicap how you think the game is going to play out and then go from there. So take the bigger picture view. If you think it's going to be more of a high scoring game than, and, and, and you're looking to bet the over and obviously you're going to want to do the same with a lot of props too. There's a correlation there. So handicap the game first before looking to, to bet your props. So then you can, uh, you can kind of formulate how you think the game's going to go and, and bet from there. And then the last thing uh, that I, I love bringing up to people, it's that Super Bowl phenomenon. We see, we don't see it in that many games uh, ever throughout the course of a year, but you see the phenomenon where um, the money line favorite phenomenon um, and, you know, right before kickoff, it's, it's kind of the tendency of the betting public to, to, to not want to, your average better doesn't want to bet a lot to win a little. So they're not going to really want to bet a favorite, you know, lay the minus 170, bet 170 bucks to win a hundred. The average better is more likely to want to bet the hundred to win 170. So as such, people want to bet, you know, most people want to bet the money line on the underdog. And oftentimes in the Super Bowl, that opens up value on the favorite on the money line, right? A kickoff. And, you know, you, when you, you see a situation where the spread does not uh, correlate to the money line in the same way that you would expect. And there's some good resources out there to see what money line you would expect uh, based off a certain point spread in the NFL. I know uh, SBR, uh, Sportsbook Review, they do uh, an odds conversion tool. You probably Google SBR odds converter and that'll help you convert spreads to money line so you can see what the, the money line should be based off the point spread. And you almost always see in, in the Super Bowl, especially a tighter uh, point spread like this one, we're seeing the three, three and a half points. You'll see a little tick of value on the money line and the favorite right before kickoff. So if you're looking to bet 
the dog on the money line, do it sooner. If you're looking to bet on the favorite on the money line, wait till right before kickoff. Yeah, and to that last point, I'm looking at SBR's uh, odd screen right now, and I'm seeing money lines of minus 170 to minus 175 for the most part on Kansas City. And at this point, that's about in line with what we would typically see from a favorite in their range, a, a juicy three or a cheap three and a half. And there's no reason to lay that money line on Kansas City right now because there will quite possibly be a flood of Bucks money line bets coming in over the next week and a half. Mm-hmm. And then right before kickoff, what is now 170 might be somewhere in the 150s, well below where it should be. Um, I know it didn't work out in the NFC title game, but kind of to your point, snagging the Packers for 15 cents less than the market price, routinely you can do that with favorites on the Super Bowl money line. Yeah, yeah, and that applies to some other bigger, you know, higher liquidity markets. So they, the same phenomenon can take place, you know, in the college football uh, playoff national championship game. You sometimes see it. And even in the, you know, the conference championship games in the NFL, but the Super Bowl, it's pretty, you know, it's safe to say that a lot of, a lot of books are going to, especially the books that have tracked more, more tickets and more square action. I guess you're going to have that money line value on, on, on the Chiefs if that's the way you're looking to bet. So yeah, I agree. I think a minus 150 is totally in the cards on, on a, a big Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing to follow up on a point you brought up, then I'll get into my uh, biggest tip, which will also have some overlap. So I'll, I'll shed some of my own, hopefully unique context to it. But you touched on the notion of betting props in line with how you envisioned the full game playing out. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. You obviously don't want to make too many bets with an inverse correlation, or you could just be, you know, laying extra vig on top of extra vig and, and that usually won't have the desired result. And at the same time, um, it, inevitably there are a lot of people out there who will be betting a side, betting a total, even if those lines are very efficiently priced by the market. And then if they're also betting a lot of props, um, I think it begs the question of unit sizing and making sure that you're not maybe too gung-ho on one path for the game to play out. Because if if you envision one path and that's not the case, instead of losing one bet, you could lose upwards of a dozen for a lot of people with a prop betting portfolio. So how do you balance the notion of, I, I think that's a valid point, um, leaning toward approaching props the way you would a full game handicap while also keeping exposure in check? Right. No, that's that's definitely... A tough thing to do because like you said, if, if it goes awry, if you, if you're betting all unders and stuff and then you, you know, you, you get that, uh, kick return touchdown to start things out and then it just creates a game flow where, you know, the, there's a team playing from behind and the offenses are a little more quick to move, you know, that, that can ruin a lot of bets for you. So, um, no, it's an interesting, uh, I guess like notion to think about. It's, it's also an interesting just discussion from like a, from a theory standpoint, you know, if you're going to look to just, but the way your game handicap shakes out, I mean, sometimes I think you could find obviously uh, market mispricings that can lead to some more bets as well. And that's a lot of the betting I do for prop bets is, you know, you look to even scalp some prices because every book's liability is different. Books are hanging different prices and stuff. So, you know, it's good to, I think, diversify and, but also, you know, hedge more or less in some ways too. Like, you know, if you're looking to bet Maybe look to bet no special teams defensive touchdown, or, or sorry, maybe look to bet a yes on defensive special teams touchdown as a sort of hedge. So there's different um, strategies you could take, I guess, to to hedge or more or less uh, put yourself in a situation where you can not find all of your tickets as graded losers and actually you know win a few of them, even if the game totally doesn't go the way you expected it to. 
Yeah, I like the example of that last bet that you brought up. Uh, most years, I would be looking to bet against there being a defense or special teams touchdown, but sometimes there could be cases where based on a line a book has or how you think a game will play out, it could make sense to bet the other way. But that's the type of bet that's less contingent on how the game will play out according to a handicap on the side or, or to a degree the total. Um, bets like if you can get a good price closer to kickoff on no overtime, you know, 10 to 1 or better, no safety, same thing. Um, a team to score three straight times that might feel correlated to the over, but regardless, um, unless there's a really low total, that's, that's probably a more likely bet than people think. Um, you know, the more or less the official prop bet of props and hops, shortest touchdown under one and a half yards, <laughs> not as contingent on a certain game handicap. So there are a lot of, you know, yes, if you like the Chiefs, then you're probably not going to want to bet Tyreek Hill receiving yards to go under. If you like Tampa Bay, then you'll probably want to look at Brady MVP or, you know, uh, Gronk to score a touchdown, things like that. But a lot of bets that aren't contingent on a team's performance can also offer value that, um, you know, can neutralize some of the exposure on any one way for the game to play out. And then whatever happens with the total in the side, you can still have some good edges in play. Um, so wanted to touch on that angle as well as the fact that bankroll management can become a bigger factor. Um, if, if you do have a lot of prop bets you like that seem tightly correlated to a side that you're betting, um, I've mentioned this several times on props and hops throughout the year, but not all bet types should have the same unit sizes. So if I say I'm betting one unit on a teaser and one unit on a prop, um, those are not the same, you know, dollar amounts. I, I tend to bet more on teasers, if, especially if you can find, you know, one that fits the Wong model crossing through three and seven for minus 110. That's the jackpot. Um you know, point spreads versus team totals. Again, like the, every type of bet as as you feel out your own process should probably have a different raw dollar amount attached to the unit size. So if somebody's a $100 better and that's what they bet on the Chiefs, don't also bet $100 on Mahomes to go over his touchdown total and Kelsey to go over his receiving yards total and uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire to go over his receiving yards. It that could be the best betting day of your life, or it could be your undoing. So there are other ways to get at it that don't have you as exposed to one specific path. Um, and if you do really like one specific path, there are ways to get at it with bankroll management that still, you know, leave you, uh, you know, somewhat protected from an exposure standpoint. So even the worst case game flow um, doesn't lead to the worst hangover the next day, um, unless you just had too many beers during the game. Right. And that's why you should be hungover the next day, not because of any other reason. So, no, I agree with all of that completely because you don't want to just hearkening back to what I said at the start. It's, it, it's one game and literally the money does not know the difference and stuff. And obviously everyone feels compelled. It's human nature. You want to have more money on the game and so many people will have money on this game in some form. Uh, but you just have to remember it's just one event and there are tons of college basketball games on the betting board the, the very next day and, and all during the week. And there's another football season that's going to come and there's a lot more things to bet on. So just remembering that it's just one event, one game, and anything can happen. As we know, the vagaries of sports betting, anything is possible in this in this art. So uh, being prepared accordingly and staking accordingly. Yeah, and to that point, well, I'll mention my one tip for betting the Super Bowl, then we'll move on to what we promise as part of this conversation as we get pretty deep into the episode <laughs> and and talk about how to win at sports betting from a bigger picture with some more evergreen angles. Um, but one more point on my end when it comes to betting the Super Bowl, uh, 
aligns with a lot of what you said. It's the biggest game of the year, but that does not mean it's time for the biggest bet of the year. I have to remind myself of that as the excitement builds every year at about this time. And I feel compelled to give everybody else that same friendly reminder, especially considering that we're looking at an awfully efficient market here. I mean, the point spread in total uh, were pretty well hammered into place before the AFC title game was even over. So um, just keep that in mind when you have one game of this magnitude. There are some awfully sharp people um, with with a lot of money in play. So um, being disciplined there, that can be your best friend. And uh, on the topic of discipline, I, I draw a parallel to how I approached the AFC championship game. I was looking at lines and ready to fire on the bills at plus three and a half for a flat minus 110 if we would see it. And it came awfully close a few times. There were some my, uh, plus three and a halfs at minus 115, so just a tick away. Also some plus threes at plus 105. And at, at plus 110, that plus three would have been a go because the favorable VIG would have uh, been worth, you know, forfeiting the hook in that case. Ultimately, those numbers just quite didn't show up. Um, so I ended up passing on the game and felt silly early on. The Bills jumped out to a 9 nothing lead. But ultimately, it was another valuable reminder um, that, Passing on a bet that ultimately loses holds more inherent value than forcing the hand on a winning bet. Because once we factor in the VIG, um, if you go 50-50 in those scenarios, you're paying out the VIG, and that's that's a good way to bleed some bankroll in the long run. So dodged a bullet there um, just by, you know, trying to figure out what I thought the, you know, the absolute floor was for a price on the bills. And it it got awfully close. But if it doesn't get there, you don't have to bet it. It's better to not lose 110 than it is to win a hundred. So, and, yeah. and in your case, it was better to not lose one fifteen than to win a hundred in that, in that regard. So yep. hundred percent. Yeah. So, and there not to be a wet blanket on this, there are still plenty of bets worth making as we kind of touched on earlier, the prop market, it's the best prop market of the year. Um, much more to come on props uh, in next week's episode of this show. And most likely on the doggy juice pod as well. Uh, in general, when it comes to props, laying the VIG can be scary, but that is often the way to go. Um, to your point, a lot of people like to bet a little to win a lot, and the public influence in this market um, can open up some pretty good windows. A lot of good numbers on props are there because they don't charge as much fig as they should, even if there's a big minus number you know attached to that line, um, especially after the public has had time to enter the market. Again, betting a little to win a lot time after time, we can see a lot of windows open up in that final 24 to 48 hours before kickoff. So there is plenty of fun to be had with the Super Bowl as a better, but oftentimes we're working with smaller edges in such an efficient market. And that does um, sometimes call for smaller bets. Yeah. Yes. Could not have said it better. And I feel like, you know, along those lines of props, you know, like a lot of I'll, I'll bet a lot of props right when they're posted, but then usually I'm not betting a lot of props in that interim period. And then a lot more that last 24 to 48 hours for the same reasons you said, you know, cause the public money comes in and there's certain bets I find myself making every single year. Like the one you mentioned, will there be three consecutive scores? Public sees that plus money and they want to bet a certain side. It always opens up value on, on the yes. And, um, and you know, no overtime. There's some other props where every year I'm laying the pretty heavy price, but. To your point, I should be laying more, so it's something I'm willing to do. Yeah, sounds like a good way to wrap up the initial approach to Super Bowl betting. Um, I know we'll be doing a lot more uh, digging into things over the next week plus and, and sharing more in our final episodes before that game kicks off. Goodbye.
All right, that'll do it for part one of my conversation with Mike, and for this episode of Props and Hops. If you found any value in this conversation, please share it with a friend who could benefit as well. Thanks to Mike for joining the show. Be sure to subscribe to the Doggy Juice Pod on Apple Podcasts to keep up with Mike's insight. Friendly reminder, we'll be back at it tomorrow with part two of the conversation, a deep dive on how to win at sports betting. It was a blast discussing this with Mike. I think any sports fan or any better at any level can gain some edges by listening to this, and if you want early access to that conversation, check out my full interview with Mike now live on the Props and Hops YouTube channel. There's a link in the show notes for easy reference. And if you'd like to hear that conversation in podcast form, go ahead and subscribe to Props and Hops and it'll automatically show up in your podcast feed tomorrow morning. On that note, we'll talk again soon. Until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. (laughs) 